Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Boop. Welcome to episode 72 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Joined once again, my co-host Mary, a woman from Canada who has received so much snow in the last two weeks that now, she now stands four center Marys above her head. I am merely a dirty snowball named Darren. Hey, Mary, how are you? Four center Marys. Oh, my God. <laughs> getting pretty tall oh my god four centimeters tall worth of snow you guys how are you what's going on i'm good uh your little snowball reference reminded me of the time that uh one of my roommates in university she'd never experienced snow before she uh made a snowball and took it and froze it in her freezer and the snowball's name for the entire year was poor bastard so okay (laughs) that's a great story i love stories I don't know. It just reminded me of poor bastard snowball. (laughs) Anyway, how are you? (laughs) Oh, I'm doing great until now. But it's been good. It's been fantastic. We had a pretty cool round table. We We just finished up here just a little while ago, which is great. We saw a lot of great people, a lot of great friends, a lot of great conversation, as always. I guess I'm the host tonight, so I get to ask the million-dollar question. And that question, of course, is what are you drinking? Well, I am drinking Ransack the Universe by Collective Arts, which when you tried that when we were in Gettysburg said tasted like Treehouse. So I think I'm drinking a pretty high in beer right now. And I am drinking it out of my George H. Thomas Rock of Mill Springs because today is the anniversary of the Battle of Mill Springs. Drinking it out of that mug. Well played. Okay. I am drinking, Mary. It is called Return of the Yeti. Okay. It is from uh, Log Tavern. Our friend Bill down in Gettysburg bought this for us. Nice. And uh, it is really good. And of course, I got it because it's a return because we're going to do the second Battle of Fort Fisher and the Union's going to return to finish nice. the job. See what I did? I tied that together right there. You're just so creative. It- I'm having one of those days. I'm drinking it out of my Charles Tilden mug uh, that the great John LaRoe purchased for us and sent nice. to us. He uh, buys stuff and you can go on his Redbubble page and buy a bunch of cool stuff. So that's what I got. That's 16th what I'm doing. 16th main for the win. You got a 16 is great. That salient is an amazing so. place to smoke cigars. Certainly is, certainly is. So what's on what's on tap tonight, Mary? What's going on? So we are going to stay at Fort Fisher where we were last week and we are going to talk part two of Fort Fisher, but we thought we were also going to end it tonight, but next week we're going to be talking a part three with Wilmington. So we're doing, we're doing the, uh, Second Battle of Fort Fisher, yep. and we're going to take it on to part three. We're going to talk about the Battle of Wilmington or the Siege of Wilmington next yep. week. We're going to finish it up because we had so much fun in Fort Fisher. We decided to kick back, put our feet up, and spend the whole episode talking about this. So let's recap real quick mm-hmm. where we were last time we yep. talked. When we last saw Fort Fisher, Mary, the combined forces of Benjamin Butler and Admiral David Porter had just got pantsed in their attempt to capture that garrison that protected that Confederate supply hub of the city of the town of Wilmington, North Carolina, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 1864. It wasn't really so much a huge defeat for the Federals as it was where a situation where Butler felt, which was supported by his subordinate, uh, a guy who was opposed to run the campaign, a guy named Godfrey Weitzel, but the fort was too strong for them to take. And so they took their ball and went home. So real quick, Mary, in case you forgot, which was 50-50, Wilmington was the only Confederate seaport left for the Rebs after yeah, Mobile fell in August of 1864, right? And it was the life uh, lifeline, the lifeblood supply line for Robert E. Lee at this time. Now, Lee knew holding Wilmington in its haven for supplies that were carried by those blockade runners 
was everything for Fort Fisher mm-hmm. and what that was protecting it. And if the loss of Fort Fisher would mean the loss of Wilmington, which would mean the loss of their supplies, which would mean the loss of Robert E. Lee's army and probably the loss of the Confederacy. Exactly. And that's exactly what he told Lamb, who is he's at the garrison in Fort Fort Fisher. And Lee tells him, yeah, if you lose Fort Fisher in Wilmington, then then that's it for Richmond. So you can't imagine we're going to see this later in episode the pressure that Lamb is feeling and what he has to do because he knows what Robert E. Lee has said to him about like, yeah, if you fucking lose this place, dude, like we're aft, we're going to lose Richmond. And at this time as well, and this isn't surprising, is Lee is starting to run low on munitions and essential supplies. And that is because of what is happening in the Western theater with Sherman and his march to the sea. And now he's going through the Carolinas. It's into December, into January. Uh-huh. He's starting to go through the Carolinas. He's ripped up all that railway through Georgia, and the munitions cannot get through to Lee like they were because the infrastructure has basically been destroyed. Mm -hmm. Lee's realizing he's slowly, and it's starting to actually go rather quickly, being bled to death right now, his army. It it is. In between the first and second battles, there are going to be some changes. You know, after that first battle, the one that ran from December 24th to 25th, 1864, Absolutely was a surprise that Benjamin Butler's completely foolproof plan of blowing up 215 Shocking. tons of black powder in the U.S. Louisiana did not work. he uh, You'll notice my um, sarcasm. There. No, I did. It's shocking. I was yeah. thinking it's kind of yeah. like the crater yeah. where mm-hmm. that was well, a it's complete true. shit show, too. But Butler got himself dumped from command, much to the delight of U.S. Grant, who hated him more than I hate the Buffalo Bills. That's how much he could not stand. Oh, I do not like the Buffalo Bills right now either. Okay, we're just going to let that go right there. Yeah, we'll let that. We won't discuss that. But the thing is that everyone, the Union and the Confederates, knew that the Federals absolutely had to try this again. And they had to try it again soon. Now, the fort, especially Wilmington, had to be in the North's pocket and to cut that vital supply line that we just talked about. It was the only thing keeping the Confederate hopes alive on the field. Now, with Benjamin Butler sent home to Low Mass, U.S. Grant is going to need a commander uh, of that force. And he turned to a guy named Major General Alfred Terry. Now, Terry is a New Englander, so you know he's smart, probably also hated the Bills, but he's from Hartford, Connecticut, and he was born November 10th, 1827. He wasn't military trained, he was a lawyer. He graduated from Yale Law School in 1848. And when the war started, he kind of like Rufus Dawes did with mm-hmm. Wisconsin, he, he joined, but he raised his own regiment. He's gonna raise a second Connecticut, which is gonna participate in the first Battle of Manassas on July 21st, 1861. He's then eventually gonna take over that seventh Connecticut. He's gonna get his star, he's gonna get his, um. General, his general star in April 1862, and he'll take over command of that Morris Island division of the 10th Corps. And he was instrumental in that siege of, of Charleston of Morris Island in, in South Carolina in 1863. Yep. He was involved in the fight uh, in Grimble's Landing, which of course is made famous by Robert Goldshaw's 54th Mass, as well as the assault on Battery Wagner. So he, he'll end up taking over the 10th Corps in the army at up to James after its commander, David Bell Burney, got stomach issues tried to blame the cart, but died anyway in October 1864. (laughs) Despite Terry's success, the thing about him was despite his success, he seemed to always fly under the radar. No matter, he has some success, but no one in Washington seemed to notice. Now, one person who did notice Terry's success was a guy named Ulysses S. Grant. So when Grant needed a guy and he wanted to take another run at Fort Fisher, Terry was going to be his guy. Yeah. And that's also because Terry was going to get along with Porter as well. He knew that, you know, Terry and Porter were going to work together 
because Terry understands the importance of working with the Navy. And so he and Porter get together to make this plan. And the other thing that Grant does for him, too, is he increases the size of troops that uh, he's going to have there because Grant is like, okay, well, maybe if we have more, they're going to be a little bit more threatened. And Porter's going to be there leading the Navy again because it's Porter. Why not? Right. And he's going to have approximately 60 vessels, a force of 2000 sailors and Marines. So the important thing to note about Fort Fisher, um, the second battle is the Marines are there too. And the Marines are another one like the Navy. They don't get talked about a lot in the Civil War. No, this is going to be one of those few times the Marines, when we talk about this, this is not going to be one of their better days, but we'll talk in detail about that. But, you know, Terry and Porter are a natural fit. They really, really Mm -hmm. are. They are. It's going to be that because they you remember how much butler and uh, porter did not get along these guys do get along but terry you know terry has that experience with the siege of charleston he's going to join up with porter to try to finish that job that in butler and porter could not do so the pressure at this point was absolutely on the union despite the november election already being over now taking over wilmington and removing that monstrous fort fisher and eliminating that blockade line was a gigantic issue Gustavus Foxmary, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, said this country will not forgive us for another failure at Wilmington. And he was right about that. They had to have it. So on the Confederate side, they knew that the Union needs to take Fort Fisher and Wilmington. They just knew. Commanding the garrison was uh, Major General William H.C. Whiting from last time, as well as the aforementioned by you, Colonel William Lamb. Mm -hmm. Now, Robert E. Lee, at this point, he's in the midst of throwing and taking haymakers from U.S. Grants and Petersburg <laughs> at this point is part of that Grants Overland campaign, right? Despite needing men because he needed men to fight Grant, he's going to send a division under Robert F. Hoke to Wilmington to help add to the rebel numbers. Lee knew that Wilmington's supply line was everything for him, and he was going to risk that many guys to send down there, even though it meant weakening his army against Grant, who was dealing with him in that Petersburg area. Yeah, and so he's going to send Hoke down there. The other person who's also down down there, too, is Bragg. Yeah, well, we'll talk about Bragg. It's because Bra- Bragg, you know, he's an interesting cat. You know, the thing about Hoke, though, is he's going to have 6,500 guys, yeah. right? He's going to get there sort of the, towards the end of the first battle yeah. around Christmas time. He's too late to really do anything. And then he's just um, kind of hanging he's out. Still, he's still going to be there. Now, you know, Whiting, you know, he's prepping for this inevitable second attack on the fort and he wanted you know he wanted more men right so he's going to send a message to your boy braxton bragg yeah and he says i hope that on any renewal of an attempt to land the enemy will not be allowed to do so without opposition general braxton bragg we'll talk about him you know he is going to be sent to wilmington and he is a huge supporter of his bff jefferson davis in richmond Big right time. october 1864 he's going to go there to take command of this confederate force in the area now he had a really bad reputation already especially in the southern press when it was announced that he was that bragg was going to wilmington the richmond inquirer wrote braxton bragg has been ordered to wilmington Goodbye, Wilmington. That's what they wrote. God, what could they see so, into the fucking future? <laughs> so they, they just knew. They... I mean, his reputation at that point has been, I mean, Bragg has his good days, but then he just kind of goes on this like kind of sharp decline, I guess you could say. And he, you know, Whiting is sending him messages saying, could you help? And as we're going to see, either he's in denial about what the threat is, or he just doesn't give a fuck. Well, it's one I, of the I, two. I, you know, 
And I'm not sure which it is. I have my own opinion. We'll go towards the end. His decision to do what he did is going to be very, very flawed. And we'll talk about that. So early on on January 6th, 1865, the Union Army transports are carrying 10,000 men of the Federal Army of the James under Terry. And they're going to go covertly. They're going to depart from Hampton Roads. Now, Admiral David Porter's fleet this time has 58 ships instead of the 64 last time. They're going to depart around the same time from Beaufort, North Carolina, and they're going to be heading towards Cape Fear and Fort Fisher. Now, the Union game plan this time is a little bit different. The Battle of Fort First, the Battle of First Fort Fisher, say that three times quick, mm-hmm. okay? Their game plan was take out Fort Fisher to stop the Confederate blockades. Yeah. That was the whole point. This time is different, okay? They want to take out Fort Fisher, and then once they take it out, they're going to take out Wilmington. Yeah. So and this is this it's a little it's a little bit different because it's a two-pronged approach, right? Right, right. They know they need to cut Lee's supply line as well as to what you mentioned before, help Sherman's campaign, uh, Carolina campaign, which is already underway. So you kill with two birds and one stone here, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. right? By the evening there of the 6th, the fleet is it can, is starting to be seen from the Fort Fisher parapets. Colonel Lamb, he's standing on that parapet and he says, I saw from the ramparts of the fort the lights of the Great Armada as one of another appeared on the horizon. So the boats are coming. They knew they were coming. The funny part about it, this is going to be right around the 12th. What's Bragg doing at this time? He's in Wilmington. He's whittling. Having a big, he's worse than he's, well, he finishes whittling. He's having a review and parade of his troops. What he's the hell? Around, like, right? he's just so in, I don't know. He seems so just not really, I don't want to he, know what's just, going on, but I'm just going to ignore well, it. I, I, I think, who knows? But Jefferson Davis, he knew the importance of Wilmington. He's going to message Bragg in regards to this effort to hold on a Fort Fisher in, in the town. And he's, Jefferson Davis uh, says to, uh, to Bragg, we are trustfully looking to your operations. May divine favor crown your efforts. Whoa. So they're basically, he's sitting there with his fingers crossed going, please, you know. Wow. Now, Meanwhile, Lamb well, is sitting there on the 12th and saying, you know, sunrise the next morning revealed to us the most formidable formidable armada the world had ever known supplemented by transports carrying 8500 troops they saw them all coming i mean you can see them coming a mile away right so early that next day around one o'clock in the morning on the 13th bragg is actually going to order the main body of hoax division mm-hmm. to go via go via land from wilmington to a place called sugarloaf we talked about it last time it's a few miles up the peninsula from fort fisher it is between wilmington and fort fisher now Hoke is going to send one of his North Carolina brigades um, under William Kirkland. He's going to send him kind of up through the um, down a steamer down to the Cape Fear River. But he's he's trying to get people down there. Okay, now the Union attack will begin with a massive bombardment from Porter's gunboat, just like last time. That will happen simultaneously with a Union infantry attack on the lands um, the forts land faced by three divisions of the of the Twenty Fourth Corps, around ten thousand guys including brigades from the U.S. Colored Troops, okay? The attack will be assisted by a second land attack on the Fort Seaforce, uh, Seaface, by 2,300-plus men from these naval marines you just talked about under David Porter. Mm-hmm. The whole thing's going to begin on Friday the 13th of January 1865. So it's bad, bad juju right there yeah. for the Confederacy, right? You know? Um, so, you know, the, the sun is going to rise early in about 7.20 in the morning on the 13th of January. A group of Union gunboats are going to begin shelling that peninsula about four miles north of Fort Fisher. Now, this is going to be that federal landing zone, okay? Think D-Day, 
They're going to yep. pound the beach, get rid of all the artillery, get all the, and, and so they can land their guys. Soon later, another naval bombardment is going to pound Fort Fisher's land front. And what this is going to do is destroy rebel telegraph lines and cover that whole area with smoke so they can't see what the hell's going on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And unlike before with the fir- first Fort Fisher, when Porter was like, oh, yeah, my shots have hit every mark. And Lamb was like, yeah, that was a waste of gunpowder. This time the shots are going to hit their mark. It was described that the earth was trembling from this bombardment. They yeah. were hitting their mark. They were so accurate in how they were doing well, it. And I think that goes back to the comment that you said in our first episode about it, that the first episode was really like it became a recon. So I think Porter was able to see from that first time, okay, this is how the fort is. That second time he goes in, which is right now, he's able to aim the guns a lot better, tell the men where to aim. Lamb's probably not doing his whole thing like, oh, I'm going to move the fucking flag around on you now. Mm-hmm. Porter's able to aim because he knows what he's aiming at. They know their target mm-hmm. now. They didn't know that in the first battle, right? Well, the, the first battle, they were aiming at the flags because they couldn't see yeah, it and, the sand forward yeah, is slow. Exactly. This time, this time, they weren't aiming at the flags. They were aiming at the guns north on the land face yeah. and on the beach in front of the sea face. That They were smart this time. They weren't firing in the fort. They were firing just north of it and just northeast of it. Now, by 8 o'clock in the morning, the, these Union troops are going to begin embarking from those transports for this amphibious landing um, on, on a place called Federal Point. And thousands of Federal troops under Division Commanders Adele Bart Ames and Charles Payne are going to come ashore at Federal Point. Now, north of the landing point at Sugarloaf, the Confederates, they're, they're there under Robert Hoke. They're going to solidify their defensive position, right? He's going to sit back and let them land because what he's afraid of is weakening his line yeah. and allowing Union troops to march north right past him to get into Wilmington. Here's the thing with Bragg, and here's what I think, okay? Bragg had a gigantic tactical error in his head. But he, his goal in his mind was protecting Wilmington. So he did not want to commit enough troops to Fort Fisher thinking that was going to weaken yeah. his chance to defend. But what he didn't realize, if Fort Fisher fell, Wilmington didn't matter anymore. Exactly. Because what is the sense of defending Wilmington if you lose Fort Fisher? And that's the great flaw with this with Braxton Bragg. He is so convinced that he can't commit troops to protect Fort Fisher because if he does – he won't have enough to fight at Wilmington. When at the end of the day, you lose Fort Fisher, you lose the blockade runners, Wilmington's gone anyway. And this is the part of the problem with Hoke too, is he doesn't want to commit troops to fight Fort Fisher for that same reason, because he thinks that these Union troops are going to go right through them and they're going to head into Wilmington. But you know, the first thing that Alfred Terry does when he gets there, he's going to send a division of the – and they knew, the Union knew this too. Mm-hmm. They're going to send a division under, uh, under the USCT, under Charles Payne, yep. up that peninsula to get between Hoax Rebs and Sugarloaf, right, and, and the Union men on the peninsula. What they kind of want to do is they kind of want to keep them there and pin them there. Now, Payne, he's a commander of the 3rd Division of the 24th Corps. He's a Boston guy, Mayor. I don't know if you know this. He's a Boston uh, guy, Charles wow. Payne. And, and here's another thing that's cool about him. You know what he did after the war? What's that? He owned three yachts. All three of them won the America's Cup. Kind of cool. Nice. Boston guy. You know, we, we win here usually. You're always there. a winner in my books. Don't worry. Okay. Well, anyway. But the, <laughs> other, the, other, the, the other part of, the, of this Union hammer, right, will be swung by a force of 2,361 naval marines from Porter's boats under the command of a guy named Lieutenant. He's a guy from Philly. 
named Lieutenant Kidder Breeze. Amazing name. name. I was just looking at his name. Amazing name. Definitely a cool name. Definitely one of the members of the All Sabor name team. Yeah. You know, but the plan is Ames is going to land uh, on the, is going to send these guys to the land face of Fort Fisher, which is kind of like the northeast. Yeah. Think of Fort Fisher looks like a seven from the sky. That's yeah. kind of what it looks like. Oh, so it's not a popsicle like it usually? No, not a popsicle. No, it's a, this one's a seven, okay? Now, right at the bend where the seven connects, that corner in the top right is where Brees's guys are targeting. Yeah, at the okay? northeast the north, bastion, right? The, north, the northeast bastion. You got it, okay? So while this is all going on, these 58 gunboats are going to rain shells down in this fort, okay? By the way, speaking of Brees, Mary, you know where he's buried? He's buried in Newport, Rhode Island, right near Gouverneur K. Warren, same area. Don't know why. Wow. That's where he's buried. So he's Gotta go there guy. someday. He chose to spend his attorney in New England. There you go, right? Nice. Inside the fort, the, uh, William Lamb, he is going to be joined by General Whiting to get some reinforcements. He'll have about 1,500 men at his disposal to defend the fort for the Confederates. Now, Whiting, you know, he, he's knowing these federal troops are on the peninsula now, right? Will we'll message yet again. Yep. He'll message Braxton Bragg and is incredulous at why they are not being attacked. No, Bra- his, message, his, mess- his message says, the enemy is on the beach. Where have you been all day? Why are they not being attacked? That's yeah. literally what the message to Braxton Bragg was. And it's not great in the fort either because Lamb says that after the bombardments, it's made it possible to repair the damage on the land face at night. No meals could be prepared for the exhausted garrison and not more than three or four of my land guns were serviceable. So in the fort, it's not great at mm-hmm. all. Well, think of a chessboard. Okay, Terry and Porter are setting up the pieces at this point, and they're yeah. getting ready to attack. They're putting everything in motion. So yeah. by early Saturday morning on the 14th of January, Terry's troops are digging entrenchments at a place called Battery Anderson and, and, and right on the Cape Fear River. Now, by 8 o'clock in the morning, that line spans the entire peninsula. Okay, At this point, Hope realizes the Union line is way too strong to attack it. And as the morning goes on, Whiting is getting more and more frustrated at Bragg, who seemingly is just sitting around letting the whole situation happen and not doing anything about it. So you you can imagine the frustration of these guys. So around lunchtime, right around noon, he's going to message Bragg yet again. He's going to say, the game of the enemy is very plain to me. I have received dispatches from you stating that the enemy has extended to the riverbank which they never have been allowed to do. If they remain there, the reduction of Fort Fisher is but a question of time. I will hold this place to the last extremities, but unless you drive that land force from from its position, I cannot answer for the security of the harbor. So Whiting now is like, what the hell? They're realizing for the most part, he's going to have this quote to Lamb. He's going to basically say, dude, we're we're sacrificing. Yeah, yeah, he says we're sacrificing ourselves. And so that's going to be a really crappy feeling, right, to oh. know that they're being left and you don't know why. Bragg's actually going to reply to him. And he's going to send – he's going to say, I'm, I'm just going to send some refor- reinforcements from Hoke, which he does, yep. that will render the fort impregnable against assault. And I will talk about that. Well, that's what you Bragg know, believed. He thought, like, Fort Fisher was impregnable against anything. Well, he's going to send – He's going to send troops under a guy named Johnson Haygood, okay, his brigade. Mm-hmm. Mostly guys from the 11th and 21st South Carolina. And it's going to total around 1,000 men. But here's the problem. Out of the 1,000 men, you know how many make it to the fort? 350. Exactly. That's all they make it. Yeah. So that's 35%. Not, not good, you know? So late in the day of the 14th, Terry and the chief uh, union engineer, a guy named Cyrus Comstock, 
is going to arrive in Battery, Holland, okay? And we'll reconnoiter that fort along with Newton, Martin, Curtis. Now, now we talked about last time. They all agree at this point the fort is ripe for the picking. It they is. know they got it. Um, they know that the, the, the uh, gunboat attacks have taken out uh, just about all the rebel defenses north of the fort. So on the morning of January 15th, the Union has destroyed just about every rebel gun on that land space. All of but four. Right. And there was an eight-inch Columbiad and in um and all 4,000 men now of Ames are in position. So they yep. are locked and loaded. Meanwhile, Cushing's brigade is in nearby Battery Holland. And that second brigade under a guy named Galusha Pennypacker, fantastic. <laughs> it's an amazing company, name. They it's not we'll it's not that like it's not the A.M. Sterling Wood, but it's still good. I don't know. That might be a future Starbucks cup name right there, Galusha. You can't go wrong with Galusha. Galusha would be amazing. So would, um, but, what's his name, Kidder? Oh, yeah. Kidder Brees is a good one. But Galusha Kenny Pack needs to be there with his third brigade under Lewis Bell has, has landed there as well. So he's getting all these guys. Meanwhile, this continuous barrage from the gunboats is still raining down again and falling among these newly arriving reinforcements of Battery Buchanan under Haygood. And that's a big reason why they only got 350. The gunboats had a big part of it, yeah. right? Now, on the sea face of the fort, those 2,261 Marines are going to be under Porter have arrived on shore Federal Point. Now, the main force of Curtis's brigade is 300 yards north of the fort, and Pennypacker and Bell are behind Curtis, right? Yeah. And all the dominoes are lined up, and Terry's ready to pull the trigger on the second assault of Fort Fisher. Yep, he is. And he's going to send Curtis in first to do that. Well, and first, he, he, he will, but he, he needs he's, what he's going to do first and foremost, he's going to signal them. And the, a lot of the, yep. the Confederate diaries talk about the signal. So right around 3.30 p.m., mm-hmm. the shells from the gunboats on the land face are just going to stop. Okay, in several gunboats, all of a sudden, a lot of these gunboats sound this ear-piercing blast of st- these steam whistles. Okay, that is so loud it can be heard as far away as a Kincard and DQ. That's how far away these things can the be heard. Kincard and DQ. And what this thing is, this is the starting gun of the attack, and everybody knew it. Mm. So, okay, no, and that's when that's when Ames is going to send Curtis in, and he goes in there and he gets very he takes very heavy fire very heavy casualties and he gets overrun at the outer works as he and he storms the first traverse and it's brutal hand-to-hand combat there and you know Ames is watching this happen with Pennypacker he he does and you feel but you gotta feel bad for Curtis I mean you know Curtis he told people he was six foot seven do you know that? Yes, I most, was reading most, that about him. Most people, most people think he he was six foot five. And don't you oh, so he he said he was two height? inches light, yeah. less no, than what he was. I, I, you know, who the hell embellishes their height? It's, it's it's crazy, but that's okay. what it was, you know. But they say they say Winfield Scott was the tallest man in the army. It was six foot five. But this Curtis said he was six foot seven. But anyway, I I, I digress. Anyways, um, so he takes very <laughs> heavy fire, and that's when Pennypacker has to go in and. He, Ames is going to go forward with him and the Confederate snipers start to target these men and his men fight through the Riverside gate and Ames orders them into the fort, despite all this heavy fire that they're undering. So this is absolutely brutal fighting that Uh these guys are under in the union. You know, Curtis is experiencing hand to hand combat when Pennypacker and Ames go in, it's they're, they're being targeted by these snipers here. 
Right. But before they get to that point, though, the initial phase of the attack was those Marines, right? So Porter's Porter's Marines uh, under Captain Breeze, those 2,200 plus guys, they're going to be, they're going to begin to march on the Northeast face of the fort. And the the reason why I mention this is because all the attention of the fort is focused on them, right? Mm -hmm. The action, the, 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 that action on this Northeast point, you know, it, it, you know, it brought all the boys to the yard is what it did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Including, you know, the Confederate leadership, Whiting and Lamb, right? So, and they're going to personally lead the defenses. So what's going on is they're fighting. Now, the Marines are going to quickly start to have problems. The first thing, the first reason why is these 2,300 guys aren't in the same division. They're all volunteers from all of the 58 boats. They've never fought together, to, together especially on yeah. land. That's part of the problem. The second problem was they all followed pistols and swords. That's what they had to fight with, which yeah, is no brutal. Thanks. And the third thing was they were supposed to attack in three waves. And what they did is they all went berserk and did one big mass confusion run. So yeah, it was very it was. like just disorganized. You know, so when they approached the fort, the Rebs who were waiting for them, they're on top of the parapets. They just are pouring fire down on these poor guys and devastated these these Marines. Now, Whiting himself stood on the rampart, swearing at the top of his lungs, screaming at his men to kill them all. He must have been an angry fellow, that Whiting. But he would that he was fired up. But the Marines got completely routed and they got forced and they, they fell back. And it made the rebels scream at the top of their lungs in joy. It reminded me of you when you saw the Howard statue that day in Gettysburg. You're so, oh, so yes, happy. I was so and, happy. But here's the thing. And it was right at this moment when those rebel cheers stopped and the pucker effect turn, took over, right? Because yep. Lamb and Whiting, they're going to look to their west. And what are they going to see? They're going to see those Union flags. Exactly. Ames, over that western salient of the fort. Now, the main attack on Fort Fisher would not be from these Marines on the northeast bastion there. It's going to be on that western face. And that's what the rebels were not ready for. Exactly. And that's the attack that I was mentioning earlier where it's Curtis yep. that goes in first with, and he takes the heavy casualties um, when he overruns the outer works and storms the first traverse. And then Ames says to Pennypacker, okay, we're fucking doing this now. And they go in and they take sniper fire and it's hand-to-hand combat in there. And that's when um, Ames orders uh, Lewis Bellin, and he's ordered forward because the other Union troops are stopped at the first traverse. And well, they, they, Bell they, they, ends they, up they, getting killed. They, they get there. They get there. A little, little time has gone by before we get to that point, though. And <laughs> Sorry. Basically, for, no, it's, it's okay. <laughs> but, I mean, um, you know, Curtis is going to initially send in his 100 guys because he needs to take out the yeah. abatees and the parapets. They have to get in there to make the point. So once they get through this, like you were saying, they start pouring through Fort Fisher, mm-hmm. getting into that western end. Now, they're going to take those heavy casualties. And they talk a lot about the hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, right? it's brutal. Now, they were literally at arm's length fighting with everything from fists to broken Labatt's bottles. Axes, <laughs> that's the worst. Jeez, that's it like did, a battle it, in Huron County. Broken Labatt's bottles? What are you talking about? That's me in it, high it school. Was, it was like a like a crazy hockey fight gone wild. Yeah. And it just went and went. Um, that second wave is going to be from Pennypacker, who's mm-hmm. going to continue to drive his way into the fort. They're going to be out of that 200, 203rd Pennsylvania. They're going to clear that passage. And then minutes later, federal troops are in the fort and they're in the parade ground. So they're just yeah. streaming through. Now, these Union troops are going to pour in from the north 
and through that Riverside Gate, and they're gonna um, that was opened after the feds took out a 12 pound Napoleon that was right there. Um, but the thing is, to try to stop the onslaught, the Rebs are gonna kind of start firing from a, a battery south of the fort, a place called Battery Buchanan. Yeah, okay? now they're gonna start firing willy nilly into the fort and it's going to take out some of their own guys but they're desperate at this point right oh absolutely the, the union troops are taking a beating as well because and also many of their officers are being taken out so the second uh, brigade commander galusha pennypacker is going to be hurt here yep. he's going to plant the flag of the 97th pennsylvania on that third traverse and he's going to be immediately hit he'll survive um by now it's around four o'clock okay and many of these revs have fallen back into the fort and Ames is there, and he's like surveying the situation, seeing what the deal is, and he notices his troops are running out of gas. Yeah. They've been going full speed. Don't forget they've been fighting hand-to-hand for hours now, and he's going to finally send at this point in that 3rd Brigade under Lewis Bell, guys from New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Indiana, yeah. and New York. Yeah, and that's because the troops are stopped at the 4th Traverse, and Bell ends up being killed pretty early on by a sharp sh- sharpshooter, um, but the other thing that happens here is like things are getting so, so desperate for the Confederates that Whitting is going to lead a counterattack and he charges the Union soldiers who are like, okay, you need to stop and surrender. And he's like, I'm not surrendering. And they end up shooting him and he gets mm-hmm. wounded. Um, and not only that, so at this point, the fighting gets so desperate and Lamb um, is, you know, all he's got in his head is the fact that you know, Robert E. Lee has told him if, you know, you know, Fort Fisher falls, if Wilmington falls, then Richmond is done. And, and I don't know what I'm going to do after this. We, we can't go on. He rallies the men that are sick and wounded and to try and fight and to hold the union. He he does, and meanwhile, you know, Whitey he's he's injured. He he has that counterattack. Yeah. He gets hurt, but he does he doesn't he gets hurt kind of bad, but not not as bad yeah. as you think he does. He's going to message Bragg again around this point, yeah. right before the whole thing happens with Lamb. He's going to message Bragg. He's going to say, "We still hold the fort, but are sorely pressed. Can you assist us from the outside?" Both Whitey and Lamb are hoping and are praying at this point that Bragg is going to send somebody. Um, and this is when the battle again kind of stalls as they, uh, for the Union side. Because they're running out of gas again. And what happens is almost out of a movie, when they slow down, what happens, the Union gunboats start again. Yeah, they right? do. They start firing the shells in the sea, and it starts painting the shells uh, into the fort. The Rebs are going to fall back. Now, Lamb, you know, this is what he mentioned before. He At this point, he's desperate. Any he port is. in the storm, he's going to run into that U, that federal the Confederate hospital in the, that bomb-proof underground, and he's going to start pulling out injured and sick soldiers. Can to you try imagine to fight, doing right? that? I mean, these poor guys are hurt. They're lying in bed. They, it's a day off. Who the hell knows? But they're they're in there, and they, they're going to go. Um, and really, you know, he... It's this is probably around four thirty in the afternoon or so, and um, he's I mean, been advised feel... to surrender at this point. He's been told you yeah. need to surrender the fort, but he's got in his head like what Lee said to him about mm-hmm. if you lose this, we're going to lose Richmond. Yeah, it's it's true, and, and he's going to you know like you said a minute ago, he's going to get hurt. Is really as soon as he starts to arrange that counterattack, he's going to get hurt. The funny thing is, he actually gets taken to that that host that field hospital yeah. in, in the bomb proof, and who is in there. Is uh, is Whitey? 
Yeah. Because he's been hurt too. And they're laying right next to each other. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall and hear that conversation. Like, what the friggin' hell? <laughs> what is but, happening? What, how, so, yeah, yeah. Lamb is probably like, so have you heard back from uh, Braxton yet? What's going on with that shit? They're like, because they're, they're, they're thinking this is going to be the worst. This is the worst day ever. You know, Whitey and Lamb are both down. So the command of the four is going to fall to a guy named Major James Riley, who has mm-hmm. been commanding that 10th North Carolina. Yeah. Now, Riley's going to try to rally the men. And he's going to gather around 200 guys at the back door of the, the savannah of the fort. Called the, it's Ooh. called the Sally Port. Okay, that's, he's going to try to get them through there. He will lead a counterattack, but it will fall flat. He'll lose two-thirds of his men right there. That gate will be known as the Bloody Gate. That's how that thing goes. Real creative name, but appropriate, I suppose. But the Union victory at this point for Newton Curtis has got to be so small, so close, he can smell it as darkness is falling. And though Ames Ames wants to entrench for the night, and we got yeah. this, we'll finish off tomorrow. Curtis is like, screw that, let's freaking go. So yeah, it's about five thirty, and he's gonna get fired up to go, and he's gonna be seriously wounded himself now. Curtis is he's gonna get hit, and because he's gonna try to get reinforcements, so um, his little his bravado kind of cost him. And I guess you know, as this goes on, you know, Terry. Terry's going to notice around this point that the Union advance is starting to slow again. Just think of it like a wave. It goes. Well, it's it's like we've talked about many times before. Like you, you have adrenaline for so long in these battles, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like exhaustion hits you. And we saw it at Antietam where around noontime, the soldiers on both sides just get exhausted and they rest. Right. And that's probably where these guys are getting now. They're exhausted. Their, their adrenaline has run out. But Terry's going to notice this, and so he's going to blow the conch shell again. In this time, he's going to have General Charles Payne to send his 27th USCT troops under Alan Blackman in. Okay, he wants to do this. Now, Whiting is going to message Bragg. He must have he must have diff, you know free data. He's been reading this guy so much at this point. Better you cell know? phone reception than I do here. Bragg is at Sugarloaf at this point, and he messages Bragg and says, the enemy are assaulting us by land and sea. Their infantry outnumber us. Can you not help us? Right Now, Bragg, for whatever reason, is hearing these rumors that Fort Fisher is going to fall. He gets this message, but he kind of blows it off again. Mm-hmm. He, will, he will eventually, at this point, send a message to Wilmington. This is Bragg now, a message to Wilmington saying Fort Fisher is under control which is the 19th century version of Kevin Bacon saying all is well in the get in the movie animal house. Right. Yeah, That's exactly. This is. Yeah. Yeah. You We're know? all good. It's all good. Now Bragg's thinking, okay, everything's falling apart. It's a big mess. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to change commanders. I'm going to send General Alfred, Alfred Colquitt now to go take over the fort. Like, that's going to make a friggin' difference. So he's going to send Colquitt, not, to, not troops to help the fort, but him and a three-man staff on a rowboat, and they're going to row merrily, merrily down from Sugarloaf <laughs> to head to Fort, Fort Fisher. God. He's going to say he thinks just by changing the changing the band-aid is going to make the you know make it go away, right? Well, it's like moving now, the deck chairs around on the fucking Titanic uh, while it's sinking. What's it going to do? Exactly. So while this is going on, Terry is going to is actually going to get to the fort himself. This is around seven o'clock at night now, with with uh, with Cyrus Comstock. Um, and Comstock actually talks Terry out of committing the rest of Payne's division because he's thinking, you know what? We need to keep that northern line strong just in case, because in case they do send reinforcements. So he kind of doesn't really, he doesn't really send anybody else. But 
with everything pretty much lost now, James Riley, who is now mm. in charge of the fort, will evacuate both William Whiting and Charles Lamb out of that hospital to the southern point of the peninsula where Battery Buchanan is, where they were firing the, firing the guns on the fort. Now, as the Union continues to drive, the rest of the Confederates are, are rushing to Battery Buchanan like recess just got recalled. They're, 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 they're heading there quickly because they know the fort can't be defended anymore. Mm-hmm. They know that the, the jig is up, the horse is out of the barn. So um, Colquist and his aides are going to arrive around 10 o'clock p.m. now. This is the guy that Bragg sent to take over for Whiting and for Lamb. Yeah. Now, at this point, the Confederates are all stuck on that southern peninsula, and Ames has now set up a strong defense inside the fort. So they own the fort now. They do. And, me- and meanwhile, north of the fort, Payne's division has set up that strong defensive line. And oh, by the way, there are 58 gunships still off the coast exactly. looking at you. You know that that meme that this is fine, that dog. Yeah, the dog this is the is burning. It, yeah, yeah, that's perfect for that. This is what it was invented right yeah, here. Exactly. At this moment, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So at this point, Major, you know, Major Riley said he pulls out his F this card. And says, <laughs> I'm too old for this shit. And he's going to raise the white flag. He's going to surrender the fort. Now, yep. Alfred Terry is going to arrive at Barry, Barry Buchanan and is going to receive that formal surrender from Whiting. And it, the funny part about it is just at this moment, Colquitt basically arrives. And you yep. know what he does? Turns around. Goes, yep. nope. He <laughs> God. Nope. He says, he says turn, turn He's around. like, nope. We're not doing that shit. Base says, roll them up, kids. <laughs> you know, and that's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> And then, so after Fort Fisher fell, like Bragg would write Jeff Davis that he was quote unquote mortified that it fell. Well, that's, that's that's the biggest bullshit statement of the civil war. He he sends the message. I am mortified at having um, to report the unexpected capture of Fort Fisher with most of the garrison at about 10 o'clock tonight, but taking which are not known. Here's what's cool about that line. That message, you know, we first sent it to was Robert E. Lee. That's who the first person Holy he sent it to. Holy shit. <laughs> then, then, then he sent it to Davis and then to Zebulon Vance, the governor of North Carolina. Oh but Lee got the first message. He found it first. Now, um, just imagine the situation now. The Union is in control of this fort. Yeah. And, uh, and all of a sudden, it's party time, okay, on the boats, in the fort. I imagine the officers handing out Fort Fisher champion T-shirts and hats as the confetti's falling. You know, yeah. they, 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 they're they, handing they, out they, DQ pop, certificates right? for the DQs you know, in Wilmington, maybe. But what's but with this fort falling now, the death warrant is signed for Wilmington. There's Absolutely. no question, right? So, um, you know, when he does finally message Davis, Davis gets the message and he face palms. He said, and he he writes back, "The intelligence is sad and it is unexpected. Can you retake the fort?" If anything is to be done by you, uh, you will appreciate the necessity of being attempted without a moment's delay. Okay, sure. Sounds good. But again, Brad doesn't do anything. He sits back because, again, goes back to the original point I said a little while ago. He thinks if he sends troops that he's going to lose Wilmington. Yep. But he doesn't realize he's lost Wilmington exactly. by losing Fort Fisher, right? He's not recognizing that, the strategy behind this. But that that is the mortally insane mindset of Braxton Bragg here yeah. because he doesn't realize you can't keep Wilmington and not, and not have Fort Fisher. Mm-hmm. He should have defended Fort Fisher, but for whatever reason, he thought he could fall back to the town and defend that with Fort Fisher gone. And I, I 
it's got to be one of the more mind-numbing, idiotic moments of military thinking in this entire war. Now, not to spoil the surprise, Mary, but February 19th, you know what happens? I'm going to guess we're going to talk about it in our next episode, but Wilmington is not going to make it. Wilmington is going to fall about a month later. So regardless of what this was, it was the the end of the line. Now, back at the fort on January 16th, um, going back to the fort real quick, there was, you know, there was all that partying going on and there was an incident that did happen, right? Now, basically, the soldiers were getting drunk and they were partying, having a great time. They were shooting off fireworks. They were firing guns up in the air. After the battle um, and all the nights of celebrating, there were several soldiers who were sleeping on the roof of the magazine. Mm-hmm. That's where they were sleeping. This is, this is, true, this is troops, oh. Union troops as well as rebel POWs. Apparently, a couple of drunk Marines went into the magazine, okay, looking for something to, to plunder. Who the hell knows what they were doing? But they took lit matches and torches in there, and the whole thing blew up, and it killed 200 guys who were sleeping on the roof. Oh, my God. Including their own men and their own guys. Now, there was an official court inquiry held by this by a guy named by General Joseph Abbott, who mentioned him earlier, of the 2nd Brigade, as well as a guy named George Towell, um, who was a captain of the 4th New Hampshire. And he's part of Lewis Bell's brigade, right? The drunken Marines' identities were never discovered or at least mentioned in the official report. So they probably know who did it, but just didn't say anything. But it was kind of a sad ending to this that you lost a lot of lives just because of things being completely out of control. Um, the battle, soon after the battle is going to be over, Terry and Porter receive a special guest unannounced, which they must have really loved. When, when Secretary of War Edwin Stanton oh, knocked God, on the door. Oh, God, that he, would not be my guest of honor. He's him. He, this was a pop-in. They weren't expecting him, okay? Now, Stanton was thrilled with the results, and he later told Lincoln, you'll be pleased to know that perfect harmony in concert of action existed between our land and naval forces. Admiral Porter and General Terry vied in the commendation each of each other. So this is a direct shot in Butler. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because what he what he's telling Lincoln is these guys are saying kumbaya, doing each other's nails, having a great time. <laughs> get along pictured that. I'm just picturing that. <laughs> but look how well things work because they got together and yeah. they got along. And this was a direct shot at Butler. There's no question. Wow. But Terry is going to present Stanton with a Fort Fisher garrison flag. Um, and of course, Stanton is going to write a letter praising both Terry and Porter for their joint operations. And Stanton's going to write about them, the combined operations of the squadron of land forces of your commands deserve and will receive the thanks of a nation. Um, rumor has it, Stanton might have even smiled. We don't know, but he might have actually wow. smiled. So, so he was happy. So, you know, we'll, you know, we'll discuss the fall of Wilmington, the yep. battle of Wilmington in the next episode. Um, but for the most part, you know, once the fort was gone, as was the town. Now, we mentioned before how important the um, the town was as an active supply hub for yep. Lee's army. It is no surprise that with the, about two months later, after Fort Fisher falls, Lee's going to surrender. Absolutely. And, why, and when you think of Lee's advance of the Appomattox campaign, what was he doing? He was looking for supplies yep. and food. And the reason why he was because that supply line in Wilmington was cut off from Fort Fisher. It was, yeah. And, you know, the a couple of other things to note about the second battle is there's 54 medals of honor awarded to soldiers who fought here, including one member of the United States Colored Troops. 
Um, it's one of the biggest, you know, um, you know, like, I guess, amphibious landings in the Civil War. Um, it was and, the big. It was the biggest amphibious landing that will up up until D Day. Up until D Day, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the heaviest uh, naval fire, and yeah, up until D Day, and the loss of Fort Fisher is going to compromise the safety and usefulness, as we're going to talk about in our next episode of Wilmington. Mm-hmm. It's a huge. It's one of these domino effects, right? Like. And I, I don't think a lot of people realize how much Fort Fisher and Wilmington, how much it hinges on what is going to happen at Appomattox in April of 1865. It was. And you mentioned the Medal of Honor is the 54, you know, uh, Curtis and yep. Pennypacker mm-hmm. are going to be are gonna be two of the 54. And Pennypacker, Pennypacker, Penny I was just going to say Pennypacker is, go ahead, talk about him. Oh, no, I, I was, I was going to say, I mean, he, he's a guy who... He's doing this at age twenty. Exactly, right? it's crazy. And, and he's going to get he's going to get his star. He's going to get a he's going to be breveted, but he's going to yep. get a, a he's going to become a general at age twenty. The youngest general in, 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 in the youngest American born general because Lafayette got one at age nineteen, but yep. but he got one at age twenty, the youngest one, and that's still still affects today. He's still the youngest one in American history. Yeah. So, and they thought know. he was going to die of his wounds, and he lives until nineteen sixteen. He lives. He lives for. He lives for a while. So as yeah. far as as far as living and not living, the casualties, you know that that joint federal and navy losses were just about a thousand, right? Yeah. You have six fifty for the infantry, and about four hundred or so for the navy, mostly from Breeze's um, Marines when they were charging that that seawall. The Rebs lost six hundred dead, and wounded, but lost that entire garrison, around thirteen hundred guys, including Lamb and Whiting. Now, what's interesting is Lamb. You know, he's surviving. He's going to spend the next seven years of his life on crutches from this battle. Yeah. Okay. And he's going to survive. He'll later become the mayor of, of uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And he's going to switch from being a Democrat to a Republican. And he'll be end up being close friends with General Newton Martin Curtis. Yep. Maybe he measured how tall he was. We don't know. But they were close friends. Though Curtis also lost an eye in this battle. So it's kind of it's well, there's that. But they they were they were actually instrumental in helping calm tensions from the north and the south after the war. They got yeah, they together were. and fought the combatants at Fort Fisher. We fought. Yeah. We're both injured, but we, everything could be cool. You know, Curtis. Um, you know, he's going to end up being a big part of that. And I was, you know, Whiting for that uh, with W. C. Whiting, H. Uh, William H. C. Whiting rather. He ain't going to be as fortunate, Mary. He's in for a shitty day, right? Yeah. He's going to be taken to prison to Governor's Island in New York Harbor, and he is going to die of dysentery, which is a lot of fun. Oh. Uh, less than two months after surrendering the fort, he's going to he's going to die. He was pissed at Bragg until his dying day. Oh, but not I can't imagine why. He was literally in his jail cell writing uh, letters to Richmond demanding an investigation while he was dying of dysentery. So, you know, so that they, they let you I know would love how, to know if there, like, was there an investigation into that as to why Bragg just ignored him for three days? I, I mean, I think the only thing I could think of is that he did not want to commit troops to Fort Fisher because he thought it was going to weaken Wilmington. That he was going to no need the sense. troops. To, and that's the thing that, that, that there lies the big mistake there is it doesn't make any sense because he should have known that Wilmington could not exist, exist without Fort Fisher. And for whatever reason, he just yep. thought that that wasn't the case. So it can truly be said that the fall of Fort Fisher was the final nail in the coffin of the Confederacy. There's no doubt. Oh, and I that agree. Surrend- and the surrender um, 
the surrender of the force was it, it changed the it changed the question of the Confederacy surrendering to not if but when. Yeah, exactly. And they knew it did. that was the end of the day, and no surprise it was, it was going to come about two months later in Appomattox with the Army of Northern Virginia, and eventually with Bentonville with, with Joseph um, Johnson down the road. Yep. <laughs> but you cannot overstate enough how important Fort Fisher was. <laughs> and how important it was that the uh, this joint navy army venture took care of it because it, it had to be done and they finally did it. it took two tries but they finally did it agreed they did and so i think that wraps up part two of our discussion about fort fisher next week we are going to be talking about wilmington which is our final final part in this discussion the fall of wilmington which mm-hmm. is it plays into this. It plays into the fall of Appomattox and the demise of, you know, kind of the Army of Northern Virginia and, and all that plays into the end of the Civil War, right? Well, this will be a fun one, too, because we're going to talk about John Schofield again. You yeah, know, exactly. From, yeah, uh, Schofield's from, from, there. From Franklin. Yeah. Now, it's going to be interesting when we talk about it because you're going to have you know, that struggle of line. They're going to yeah. fall back. They're going to fight and fall back. And eventually, um, not to spoil it, but you're going to have Bragg, who's going to take a lot of the supplies and get them out of there. He's going to burn a lot of the tobacco factories and some of the, the, the warehouses. And eventually, Schofield will take over Wilmington. He will use that as his launching point for Sherman's Carolina campaign that's going to end up going up towards uh, Benville, we talked about last time. So this is this is going to be the getting that foothold in Wilmington for John Schofield. But it's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, I think Fort Fisher is going to be a situation that um, is studied a lot, but I think it needs to be studied more. Exactly, because I it think does. not a lot. Ha- not a lot is talked about North Carolina no. area, Italy. It's really, really not. And I think you cannot have a true story of the end of this war without Fort Fisher. And it's why I think that's probably why it ended up in that that Lincoln movie. Oh, I agree. It is. Really yeah, on. and that's the one thing that you know. That's kind of. You know, when we watched that last week, it's kind of like, wow, they're they're talking about Fort Fisher. It's clearly an important thing in the end of the Civil War. You know, it needs to be addressed a lot more. And when you look at it, you real you reckon like you know you kind of fit together these pieces of the Civil War puzzle that, you know, Fort Fisher falls, Willem- Wilmington falls, and all of a sudden Richmond falls. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what Robert E. Lee said would happen, right? So you have to look at these. You can't look at the Civil War in these silos of just like, oh, Richmond or Fort Fisher or whatever. Everything has an effect on what else is happening, right? It, it all goes in, but everything it, it was falling apart anyway. The election was yeah. over. Lincoln was a president again. But what this did right now is it just, you know, it was a final piece of Anaconda plan. It mm-hmm. really was the final, yeah. the final, it, like I said before, it was the final nail in the coffin. So exactly. I'm glad, I think we did this just as fun talking about it. So we'll talk oh, next week about the fall of Wilmington. So what is coming up next? I know it's Wilmington. What else <laughs> it's, is on our Wilmington is coming up next, but uh, next Wednesday night uh, on the 26th, we Wednesday the 26th at 6 p.m. We have our first book club meeting of 2022, which is about Armistead and Hancock at Gettysburg by Tom McMillan. The author will be joining us for that. Even if you haven't read the book, you can join us for that discussion, uh, 6 p.m. via Zoom, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. This episode will be dropping, actually, you're listening to it right now. Um, we'll be doing our Facebook Live on Sunday. So our next episode is going to be on Fort Wilmington. And then after that, Mill Springs. So we were pushing everything back by a week. So a lot of stuff coming down <laughs> yep. the pike. So any 
Any final words from you, Fincherill? <laughs> so thank you to all of our listeners for these 72 episodes. Um, you guys are awesome. Uh, thank you tonight for the roundtable as well for those of you that joined us. And thank you to you, Darren, for being the awesome co-host and putting up with me as well. Well, for I'm being not too kind of get because sometimes I jump ahead and get apparently I turn the way back machine into the let's go forward machine. So thank you, you for like Dr. Brown, you know, sometimes, but I am, but yeah, any right. final words from you? Nope, I think it was a fun episode. It's fun to do this, it's always fun to do this with you. And look forward to the next action packed episode of Savoir Breakfast Club. Funko Mary. Says hello, Uncle Mary. And, uh, we will head. We'll head off to our next thing. So, actually, can I Owl Mead. Oh God. Says hello. It's, it's just, just like that. Okay. Anyway, so everybody, thanks for thanks for joining on. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Have a great and safe weekend. Stay warm. Stay dry. And have a um, a great rest of the work week as well. So, thanks everybody for appreciate it. We will talk soon. As always, we will see you on the other side. Peace out, everybody. See you guys later. Do 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 do.